It's Wednesday, February 9th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Governor Larry Hogan announces a lottery for boosted adults. Baltimore launches a long-awaited water bill discount program. Maryland lawmakers debate whether to ban ghost guns. Two expansive housing bills come before the Baltimore City Council. And a conversation with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky on the latest COVID guidelines. It's The Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Maryland's COVID-19 positivity rate has dipped to below 5.5%, according to state health officials. Hospitalizations are also down from yesterday to just over 1,000. Officials also reported this morning that 40 people died in the past 24 hours, bringing the state's total COVID death toll to 13,568. Governor Larry Hogan announced a new $2 million lottery Tuesday for Maryland adults who get their COVID boosters. Each week through early May, one lucky resident will win. The initiative follows a similar lottery last year for Marylanders who got vaccinated. On Tuesday, the state reached a milestone of 95% of adults vaccinated, but just over half of Maryland adults have gotten their booster. Hogan said he hopes the lottery will drive up that rate. Our goal with this promotion is to reach those people uh, who didn't realize the importance of getting boosted or who are on the fence or those who just haven't gotten around to it yet. The initial cash prize is half a million dollars. You can get that prize if you're already boosted or do so by Valentine's Day. After that, each week's winner will get $50,000 until the final week when you can win a grand prize of a million dollars. Harford County's health department is opening a new COVID testing site at the epicenter at Edgewood, a nonprofit community center on Pulaski Highway. The site will offer drive-up and walk-in testing Monday through Saturday. Testing is free of charge, but individuals are asked to show proof of insurance or a government-issued identification card. Governor Larry Hogan announced Tuesday he will not run for U.S. Senate later this year, a decision that may affect Republican sway in Congress for years to come. Callan Tanzel Suddeth reports. Putting to rest long-swirling rumors, Governor Hogan said he has been humbled by encouragement from other Republican lawmakers to throw his hat in the race. But ultimately, it is not a role he wants. A number of people have said uh, that they thought I could make a difference in the Senate and be a, a voice of uh, common sense and moderation. Uh, I was certainly humbled by that, but I, I don't aspire to be a United States Senator. Hogan, who is term limited, did not reveal any other hints about his political future. Right now, he said, Maryland is his only priority. When I pledged uh, to the people of Maryland that I was going to give this job as governor everything I've got every single day that I have been given, uh, I, I meant it. Uh, and that commitment is far more important to me than any political campaign. The gubernatorial election is November 8th. For WIPR News, I'm Callan tansel Suddeth. Maryland's House Republicans unveiled their own tough-on-crime package today, a week after their Senate counterparts. WIPR's Joel McCord reports. One of the bills would prohibit bail for someone charged with a violent crime who has a previous record of violent crimes or is awaiting trial on a separate violent crime charge. 
Delegate Jason Buckle, the House Minority Leader, cited the case of the mother of a Naval Academy midshipman who was killed last summer by a stray bullet fired by a gunman who had eight prior violent crime convictions and was on home detention awaiting trial on additional charges. But it's infuriating that she's not here because a brutal predator with an extensive history of violence was given the opportunity by our legal system to walk free after being charged with yet another violent crime. Other bills would require local law enforcement agencies holding undocumented immigrants to cooperate with federal officials, help local governments pay for police body cameras, and establish municipal-level police accountability boards. Joel McCord, WYPR News. Baltimore leaders launched a new, long-awaited water bill discount program Tuesday that offers tiered prices according to income. WYPR's Emily Sullivan reports. Complaints of overbilling from Baltimore's aging water system customers have persisted for decades. Mayor Brandon Scott says the tiered discount program will create a more equitable city. Simply put, water for all will be a game changer for our residents. Rihanna Eckel of Food and Water Watch says the program will also increase the city's collections rate. When water bills are affordable, people pay them. The city will give the discount to some renters on preloaded debit cards, which the federal government considers to be taxable income. Eckel cautions that this may prevent some customers from accessing other income-based benefits. Scott says he'll work on the payment issue with state and federal legislators. And Emily also reports... A new audit assessing Baltimore's long-troubled water billing system found the Department of Public Works lacks a host of accounting processes. The agency does not have a codified system in place to collect overdue bills, such as sending those bills to a collections agency. And while DPW officials know how much money they collected from customers in 2019 and 2020, they cannot calculate how much they billed. In his report, City Auditor Josh Pash said, failing to take proactive measures to increase revenue collections poses the risk of financial loss. His audit also found that DPW did not stick to several benchmarks, including promises to acknowledge all billing complaints within 48 hours and resolve them within five business days. In a statement, Comptroller Bill Henry said DPW cannot be run properly if there isn't a clear policy around revenue collection. Emily Sullivan, WYPR News. Mayor Brandon Scott has been appointed as a co-chair of Mayors Against Illegal Guns. That's a gun violence prevention program that Michael Bloomberg started in 2006 when he was mayor of New York City. Scott's nine co-chairs include the mayors of New York, Tampa, Chattanooga, and St. Louis. According to the group, the mayors will serve two-year terms and will advise on strategies to ending gun violence across the country. Baltimore County is legally challenging an effort to block its redistricting map from taking effect for the 2022 elections. WYPR's John Lee reports the case is scheduled to go before a judge next week. The suit against the county by the ACLU and others says the map dilutes black voting strength. It only provides for one black majority district on the seven-member county council, even though the county is nearly 30 percent African-American. In a document filed in U.S. District Court, attorneys for the county counter that black candidates can win in white majority districts. That's what Cheryl Pasteur did when she was elected to the school board in 2018. But Debbie Gion, the legal director of the Maryland ACLU, says Pasteur won because her white opponent 
didn't campaign. That's the only example that they were able to show, and um, it doesn't prove the point that they're trying to use it for. Attorneys for the county declined to comment. John Lee, WIPR News. Maryland's professional firefighters joined the effort Tuesday to ban a class of chemicals known as PFAS in the state. The EPA says they can cause harmful health effects in humans. WIPR's Joel McCord reports. Grant Walker of the Maryland Professional Firefighters Association told a virtual news conference with lawmakers that cancer has replaced cardiac events as the leading cause of death in firefighters. He blamed PFAS, which are used in firefighting foam as well as firefighters' gear. He said bills to completely ban the chemical are a top priority for his group after lawmakers banned their use in firefighter training last year. And it is the next logical step to eliminating these cancer-causing agents from a firefighter's everyday life. He said other states have laid out a roadmap to achieve that goal. Maryland will join California, Colorado, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New York, and Washington in banning these toxic chemicals from firefighting foams in Maryland. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Montgomery County's Board of Education has chosen Dr. Manifa McKnight as its next superintendent. It's the first time the board has voted for a black woman to lead Maryland's largest school system. McKnight had been serving as the interim superintendent for the entire academic year after taking over last March. Cases and hospitalizations that saw a spike due to Omicron in December are steadily going down, including here in Maryland. According to a New York Times report, since the pandemic began in the early months of 2020, at least one in four people who live in the U.S. contracted COVID. More than 901,000 people have died. Several states have announced this week that they will be dropping their statewide mask mandates in schools and in childcare facilities as early as next week or by the end of March. But the CDC still has not changed its guidance that students, teachers and school staff continue to wear masks during the school day. While pandemic fatigue has set in for many, the heated rhetoric in many school board meetings across the country are as fervent as ever. So... Is it time to unmask kids in schools? Are we on the precipice of returning to some type of normal? Our midday host, Tom Hall, put those questions to Centers for Disease Control Chief, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, yesterday. So, of course, we've always said that the decisions um, and these policies have to be made at the state and local level, and that's what you see happening. I will say our current guidance um, is, as you say, it currently still recommends that all schools encourage students to wear well-fitting masks consistently and while indoors, and that's consistent with our guidance that still also recommends um, that people mask in public indoor settings in areas of higher substantial transmission. Um, I want to say how cautiously optimistic I am with the number that you you noted that that things are going in the right direction and with that we will continue to evaluate the science but right now we still have about 290,000 cases every single day and our hospitalization rates now are higher than they even were at the peak of our Delta surge and so in this moment while we are looking ahead and planning ahead and we'll continue to evaluate and follow the science um, our recommendations can uh, are consistent with uh, encouraging students to wear well-fitting masks. Dr. Walensky maintains we should still follow the science. 
but what does that truly mean when it comes to guidance? When even some in the scientific and medical community say it may be time for us to get back to normal. And does she think it's time for the CDC to once again update its guidance? I think that's actually a very helpful conversation because I think people would like to believe that the science is cut and dry, it's black and white. Um, and what people are realizing is that the science is gray and the science evolves and the science changes. Um, certainly at CDC, we look at the science. Um, we look at transmission risks. We look at um, transmissibility. We look at different variants. We also have to look at the epidemiology, where we are in the epidemiologic epidemiologic sciences, and then we have to look at um, what's implementable, what's feasible, what can people do, and it is the sort of um, uh, where all of those meet, which is how we come up with our guidance. But I think your point is well taken, and that in the context of a pandemic with a, you know, numerous different variants that have um, led to surges in this country and around the world, the science is um, sometimes gray, and sometimes decisions have to be made um, based based on imperfect science in an imperfect moment. When it comes to the mental health effects of the pandemic, many parents argue that guidance saying their children must remain masked in schools is detrimental. And some in the medical community say there is evidence of that. But Dr. Walensky says when trying to parse which side of the issue to come down on, we should look to last year at this time when schools were not open. So the most important thing that we need to be able to do is make sure that our schools can be open. We now have about 96% of our schools open for in-person learning. And I think for all of those reasons that you just listed, we owe it to our children to make sure that they can safely stay in school. Um, right now, that includes um, masking. We've seen um, outbreaks that have had um, that have occurred in communities where students were not masked and schools had to close. And um, you know, much of our guidance is based on the amount of community transmission, how much transmission is out there in the community and still extraordinarily high across the country. Country, again, with about 300,000 cases per day. Dr. Walensky says if we want to get back to normal, the best way to reduce community transmission is for children and adults to get vaccinated. And right now, um, our uh, rate of vaccination among our teenagers, 12 to 17, is at about 56 percent. Our rate of vaccination among our um, younger age groups, 5 to 11, is about 23 percent. So if we can get more and more children vaccinated, drive the number of cases down, then we have a much better chance of making sure that our schools can remain open when masks come off. That's CDC head Dr. Rochelle Walensky who appeared on Midday with Tom Hall yesterday. You can hear the entire interview at WYPR.org. Maryland lawmakers' effort to ban ghost guns went before a House of Delegates committee today. Ghost guns are unregistered and untraceable firearms that can be bought online without a background check. Advocates from both sides are lining up to argue their cases. WYPR's Joel McCord reports. Grace Simonson, a senior at Magruder High in Montgomery County, spent hours huddled in a closet when her school was locked down last month after a student was shot in a bathroom. She says she and her friends were frantically texting each other to try to figure out what was going on. At last, they found out. 
and they found out the shooter, another student at the school, had used a ghost gun. Simonson will testify in favor of a bill to ban those guns in Maryland. She says anybody with a credit card could get one. While there's no way to prevent a person who wants a gun to get one, what we can do is make sure that the legal ways to get one make it more difficult for people under the age of 18 to possess a ghost gun. But it's more complicated than that, says Mark Pennock, president of the gun rights advocacy group Maryland Shell Issue. Even if you ban ghost guns in Maryland, and if somebody really, really wanted a ghost gun as opposed to a regular gun, all they do is go across state lines, cash on the counter, and go home with one. As long as the guns aren't federally regulated, he says, being able to cross state lines to make a purchase will nullify anything Maryland does. All you're doing then is, is criminalizing law-abiding owners who happen to be hobbyists who have been making these for centuries. Delegate Leslie Lopez, sponsor of the House version of the bill, scoffs at that argument. She says she hears it every time a gun bill comes up. It's like no matter what bill you put forward, there's no there's no amount of compromise that's respected. Every, you know, everything is a nail to a hammer. Her bill would ban buying, selling, and transferring an unfinished frame or receiver if it does not have a serial number imprinted by a licensed manufacturer starting June 1st of this year. After January 1st, 2023, it would be illegal to own a gun without a serial number, though the ban would not apply to guns manufactured before 1968 or antique firearms. Those who own guns without serial numbers could take them to a firearms dealer to get serial numbers. Lopez says her bill merely codifies in Maryland, changes the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, is making in its definitions. This is basically saying that you can sell those pieces, but it has to be serialized by the manufacturer. And if you already have one of these pieces that you've already, you put it all together um, and as functional as a firearm, it needs to be serialized. Lopez says the bill is needed because shootings with ghost guns is the fastest growing form of gun violence in the United States. She points to police records that show sharp increases in the number of ghost guns recovered annually. Because criminals know that they can access these very cheaply, they can dispose of them very cheaply. Um, it's, it's this huge loophole that criminals know exists. But Panic of Maryland Shell Issue says what Maryland really needs is strict enforcement of existing criminal laws, pointing to the more than 300 ghost guns the Baltimore Police Department seized last year. I'm willing to bet a large sum of money that every one of those guns that they seized was illegally possessed, and thus the possessor could have been already punished under existing state laws far more severe than any punishment that could be meted out under this ghost gun bill. Grace Simonson, the Magruder High student, says she just wants a world where no one should have to worry about a student with a firearm coming into their school. Having this leg legislation pass would mean there's just another barrier in the way for teenagers to possess firearms. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Baltimore City Council members introduced two expansive new housing bills at a meeting earlier this week. One would create a short-term rental assistance program. And as Emily Sullivan reports, another would revamp the city's inclusionary housing law. 
The proposed rental assistance program would give up to $1,500 a month to families experiencing housing emergencies. The legislation, introduced by Councilwoman Odette Ramos, calls for the Department of Housing and Community Development to screen eligible families and give up to 12 payments directly to participants' landlords. Because we know that one of the major obstacles to success um, is housing. The bill defines housing emergencies as homelessness, mortgage foreclosure, or tax sale foreclosure. Another provision gives the housing department broad oversight to admit any family that is experiencing a crisis within their current home, such as domestic violence. Families enrolled in certain job training programs may also participate. Because sometimes that first check doesn't come quite yet when you want to be able to pay the rent. Participants in violence intervention programs such as ROCA and Safe Streets will also be eligible. Uh, We also know from talking with ROCA that one of the big obstacles um, to getting out of situations that are really harming people is housing. The housing department must screen applicants and conduct audits every four months to ensure that participating families are still eligible for the program. The program would begin in January of 2023 should the bill become law. The legislation does not include an estimated cost, but notes that admission to the program would be subject to funding availability. Ramos also introduced legislation to tighten loopholes in the city's current inclusionary housing law, which requires new housing developments to include some units that are rented or sold at below market prices. Housing advocates have long said that such policies can help dismantle racial and economic segregation by increasing affordable housing options. The first inclusionary housing law that was passed um, in Baltimore City in 2007 um, has only produced 37 affordable units. And that's because the law itself allows for many loopholes, many waivers. Ramos says her version of the inclusionary housing law would close those loopholes so that more affordable units are brought to market. And so this version that you see before you swings the total opposite direction um, and removes those loopholes so that we are ensuring that Um, All of these units that uh, we need in areas that typically don't have affordable units do get that. The bill draws on findings from a study by the University of Maryland's National Center for Smart Growth and Enterprise Community Partners, which found that Maryland has a shortage of 85,000 affordable housing units for households earning less than 30 percent of median income. The study notes that people of color, individuals with disabilities, and seniors are disproportionately affected by housing affordability hurdles, such as high security deposits and down payments. Council President Nick Mosby says the two bills are the second phase of his House Baltimore legislative package. I'm really excited to bring Baltimore City in the 21st century as it relates to real inclusionary housing, uh, as particularly as it relates to us building out new communities and seeing a tremendous amount of development in certain areas of a city. Mosby's first package of housing bills introduced last fall, which includes a proposal to revive the Dollar House program, has met fierce criticism from Mayor Brandon Scott's cabinet and has yet to go before the council for a preliminary vote. Emily Sullivan, WYPR News. always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Friday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. 
big thanks to my colleagues on the WYPR News team, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Callan Hensel Suddeth. Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.